This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by chocolate milk. Want to make milk even worse for the environment? Drink some chocolate milk today. Welcome to episode 9 of The Sweaty Penguin. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Before I jump in, you might notice that the time code is a little shorter today. That's actually because we revised our format. Instead of bringing a conservative and a liberal student guest onto every episode, we're going to keep each episode to just a monologue and expert interview and start bringing the students onto our bonus episodes. That way, our student conversations won't be crunched for time, and these individual episodes can become a bit shorter because, let's face it, no one wants to hear my voice for 45 minutes a week, and that's myself included. So we're really excited about the new format, and we hope you are too. Today, we're talking about breathing, or as Kim Kardashian's resume calls it, special skills. Humans are bad at a lot of things, from critical thinking to making a Thanksgiving turkey that isn't dry to building airplanes with legroom. So you'd think if there were one thing that wasn't an issue, it would be breathing. Sadly, that's far from true. In addition to the fact that a WikiHow article entitled How to Breathe has 1.1 million views and there are literally dozens of breathing apps in the App Store, there are also a lot of people who have respiratory diseases, the most common of which being asthma. And right now, asthma is a bigger concern than ever. Those with underlying medical conditions continue to be at a higher risk for contracting the coronavirus. Of those people, more than 25 million Americans have asthma. We do know the virus settles in the lungs and causes a cough and shortness of breath. And for asthmatics, that can be even more dangerous. Many infections will start with the upper respiratory tract. And we know that in the asthmatic population, if we don't clear that up, we won't have much control of clearing the lung up. Yeah, remember coronavirus? That's still here. At this point, coronavirus news feels about how watching new episodes of American Idol feels. Seriously, they're on season 18. Like, okay, Ryan Seacrest, you've spread to millions of people, everyone was talking about you for ages, but now we've got the voice and the masked singer and we're way more interested in those, so can you just chill out for a second? But while coronavirus spreads faster than the legs of the guy sitting next to you on the subway, who consequently could be carrying coronavirus, it poses extra concerns for people with asthma. And that's not all. Asthma itself is really dangerous too. 10 Americans die every day from asthma, and 1 out of 13 Americans have it. And there are a few contributing factors here, but one of them is the environment. So today, we'll take a look at asthma from the environmental perspective, what problems exacerbate it, and how we can solve those problems. But first, let's go over what asthma is. If you have asthma, your airways will be more sensitive and will react when you come into contact with the trigger, such as pollen. When your lungs react, the muscles of the airways become extremely tight. They become narrower, and the inside of the lining becomes swollen and inflamed. If you can imagine a hose pipe narrowing down to a straw. Some people with asthma may also get sticky mucus or phlegm. Exactly. Everyone's airways are wrapped in muscle. And yes, Terry Crews' airways have the most. Asthmatics can experience asthma attacks, where that muscle tightens, 
the airways inflame, and mucus can build up inside them, which can lead to coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath, chest tightening, and if left untreated, can even be fatal. Some people experience symptoms daily, while others have controlled their asthma and experience them very rarely. I'm actually prone to asthma myself. On a scale from extreme to mild, I'm somewhere around sweet honey barbecue dipped in ranch with a glass of milk on the side, but I still have an emergency inhaler, which I use about as often as Jenny McCarthy says something factual. So what triggers an asthma attack? Unfortunately, the list is seemingly endless. Some of the many asthma triggers include tobacco smoke, pollen, dust, fragrances, exercise, cold weather, stress, and even the common cold. In other words, every single thing at college. And that's not all. In addition to pollen and dust, asthma can be triggered by other environmental allergens like dogs, cats, and mice. It can be triggered by mold and asbestos, which explains why some asthmatics suffer attacks while sitting at their desk at work, often forcing them to change departments or even leave their jobs. And it can be triggered by several air pollutants. In fact, the only thing that doesn't trigger asthma is TGI Fridays. Come on, tell me there's something bad about TGI Fridays. You just can't go wrong. It's a restaurant completely inspired by the third best day. This leads us to the next question. What causes asthma? And as straightforward as that question is, doctors are still researching it to this day. What we do know is that there isn't just one cause. It's actually a combination of genetic and environmental factors, as respirologist Peter Perry explains. There's probably multiple variants of genes that are inherited from mother and father that increase your chances of getting asthma, not inevitably get asthma. So they increase your chances that with the proper environmental triggers, like maybe allergens, maybe viruses, maybe pollutants at the right point in your life, you will have a response that then generates the asthma. Pollutants at the right point in your life? Don't you mean pollutants at the very, very wrong point? Dr. Perry is correct, though. The environment plays a significant role in both creating asthma triggers and causing asthma itself. And to see just how important the environment is for asthma, we'll travel to the South Bronx in New York City, a low-income, high-density, predominantly Black and Latino area with the highest rates of asthma in the country. We believe the Bronx asthma rates are extremely high and our air quality is really terrible and bad because this community uh, is encircled by highways. It has five bridges intersecting with our neighborhood. Um, there is one of the largest waste transfer stations in the city located right here in our community. 25% of Manhattan's waste comes here to this community. That clip was from Michael Johnson, a South Bronx resident who co-founded South Bronx Unite. And he's absolutely right. No one wants Manhattan's crap in their neighborhood. Even Manhattan doesn't want Manhattan's crap. You walk through Times Square, and it's a bunch of New Yorkers awkwardly avoiding people in Elmo costumes who are shouting, Oh, look, look! Today, Elmo is taking pictures with Elmo's toy camera. Smile! Click, 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 click. Now, now, let's see what else Elmo's going to take pictures of. Yeah. Hmm. Ah. Elmo knows! And before you know it, Elmo's in court for sending unsolicited dick pics. But unfortunately, 
Manhattan produces more waste than fake Elmo's and Hades Town. According to the New York City Economic Development Corporation's 2016 report, New York City generates 13,000 tons of waste every year. And at the time, 25% of that was going to waste transfer stations in the South Bronx. Waste transfer stations, among other hazards, bring in trucks filled with garbage all day, emitting toxic gases and the smell of trash. And as you can imagine, having several waste transfer stations concentrated in one area makes the smell a lot worse. And the city has passed a law since then to reduce that capacity to 10% of the city's total waste. But keep in mind, the South Bronx houses just 2.5% of the total city population, and according to Columbia University, out of New York City's 59 community districts, the South Bronx generates the fourth least waste. Take these two statistics together, and we see that even 10% is wildly disproportionate. And the issues go beyond waste transfer stations. The South Bronx has a FedEx hub, a Wall Street Journal and New York Post printing hub, and a fossil fuel power plant, all of which come with major air pollution. On top of that, three highways, the Major Deacon, the Bruckner, and the Cross Bronx Expressway, quite literally form a triangle around the South Bronx, which has earned the area the nickname, the Island of Pollution. The air pollution emitted by trucks, cars, and power plants irritates the airways and can make asthma worse. This same air pollution also fuels global warming, which promotes dangerous smog and longer, more potent pollen seasons, which can trigger asthma attacks. And if that wasn't enough, when South Bronx residents go inside, they find mold, asbestos, and rat infestations at disproportionately high rates. One South Bronx neighborhood, Mott Haven, is ranked as the most rat-dense neighborhood in New York City. So when you cram basically every asthma trigger into one small community, it's no surprise that Mott Haven is often called Asthma Alley. Asthma rates in the South Bronx are triple the national average, and according to some estimates, as many as one in four children there have asthma. In an already low-income community with a high Black and Latino population, this means more stress, more hospitalizations, and more deaths. Affecting adults, but predominantly affecting children. So you can imagine how South Bronx residents reacted when one more company decided to build a warehouse there. After months of protesting Fresh Direct's move to the Bronx, South Bronx Unite has recently filed a lawsuit arguing that Fresh Direct has not allowed environmental standards or sufficiently given back to the Bronx. Fresh Direct, the online grocery delivery service, announced plans to build a warehouse in Mott Haven in 2012, which would bring a thousand daily truck trips and worsen Mott Haven's already horrendous air quality. But since the warehouse would create a thousand new jobs, the government provided Fresh Direct $127 million in tax breaks and subsidies. $127 million for a warehouse that cost $112 million to build. Seriously, New York just paid for the warehouse with tip. What's next, a New York City Ikea where you have to put the formaldehyde together yourself? But despite the jobs, many Mott Haven residents were furious. We understand the need for jobs, mm -hmm. but we're saying we shouldn't have to take jobs for exchange of our health. 
You know, if you don't have, if our children are suffering from health illnesses, from asthma-related illnesses, they will miss school. That has poor education, poor employment. It's a cycle of, uh, of poverty. So we have to think differently about how we create jobs and giving one company $127 million without doing a, a thorough environmental impact statement seems disrespectful. Exactly. In addition to the significant cost of students missing school for their health, there's a cost on the health care system. All for a warehouse which does most of its business in Manhattan and other parts of the city. And since these jobs are so low wage, it's hard to argue that they actually bring people out of poverty. Despite the lawsuits from residents, Fresh Direct successfully opened their facility. And as it turns out, the project was not actually economically viable in the first place. Just last February, the Wall Street Journal reported that Fresh Direct could not pay their $5.4 million tax bill, so New York agreed to defer the bill with interest for five years. New York, have you never loaned money to a broke friend before? If someone says, can I borrow $5.4 million, I promise I'll pay you back. They're not paying you back, man. This year, the issue of asthma in the Bronx was amplified through coronavirus. Even though Manhattan has more people, the Bronx has more cases and more deaths. As I mentioned, the South Bronx is low income and high density, meaning a smaller percentage of people have jobs they can do from home and social distancing is nearly impossible, which makes the number of infections go up. And since there's such a high concentration of asthma and asthmatics are at higher risk, the death rate for COVID-19 went up by 50% there. Put all of this together, and it's no wonder that the Bronx is by far the hardest hit borough in New York City. We've talked a lot about the South Bronx since it is Asthma Alley after all, but sadly it's not alone. A study in Houston, Texas, for example, compared two low-income majority-minority communities in the city, Galena Park and Harrisburg and Manchester, with two more affluent, predominantly white communities in the city, West Oaks and Eldridge and Bel Air. 40% of Galena Park residents and 90% of Harrisburg and Manchester residents live within a mile of an industrial facility that emits hazardous chemicals and has accident risk, as opposed to 15% and 10% of West Oaks and Eldridge and Bel Air residents. And when you look at the respiratory hazard index in each community, which measures the likelihood that air quality causes a non-cancer respiratory disease such as asthma, surprise, the first two communities have much worse ones. And the risk of cancer went up by around 30%. These disparities exist in countless communities across the country, causing asthma and with it a slew of environmental, economic, social, and health costs even harder to quantify than the number of people in New England now suddenly claiming to be lifelong Tampa Bay Buccaneers fans. So where do we go from here? Well, there's two main pieces, treatment and prevention. In terms of treatment, many people are familiar with inhalers, and there's two types, emergency inhalers, which asthmatics can take when an attack happens to quickly relax the muscles surrounding the airway, and preventer inhalers, which are usually taken around twice a day and contain a steroid that reduces airway inflammation over the long term. But treatment goes beyond inhalers or other shots or medications. There needs to be access to hospitals, access to testing, access to treatment, and since asthma is seen at higher rates in low-income communities like the South Bronx, 
affordability becomes an issue too. There's also issues of bias in medicine. An Emory University study found that African-American asthma patients were less likely than white patients to receive outpatient care or care outside the emergency room, a disparity worsened by the fact that the rates of asthma in African-American children is nearly double that of white children. And on top of that, doctors have responsibilities beyond just writing a prescription. You help them sort out their medication because a lot of them are on the wrong medicine or they don't use it right. I mean, they have done study after study where more than half of us are using our medicines non-optimally. Growing up on inhalers, I can tell you it's not as easy as it looks. You're supposed to shake it like a juice box and do a test puff, then breathe in at the exact right time, then hold your breath and count to 10. And that is a lot for a kindergartner. Are we counting by ones or twos or fives? Do we need to do Mississippis? It's a lot to keep track of. Beyond medication, doctors often have to advocate for their patients, whether it be an adult at work who sits near an asthma trigger or a child in school who needs a note telling his PE teacher that he is not fine, he needs his inhaler, and he needs you to stop blowing your little whistle like it's a piccolo and go back to the bench of the D3 lacrosse team you came from. And that's a lot harder to do in a marginalized community where there are often more cases and fewer hospitals, leaving doctors to become overburdened. And look, there's a ton to talk about with regard to treatment. All of these things are way more intricate than we have time to get into right now. But since we are an environmental podcast, we will turn to the second category of solutions, prevention. For starters, that means reducing air pollution. Just listen to Cynthia Rowles, a 14-year-old asthma patient in the South Bronx. I remember a lot of kids, it was in like fifth grade where they're writing, what are you most scared of in our neighborhood? I wrote trees because I get sick so easily here. I also wrote air pollution. They're writing gangs, violence. I get that. Then there's also the health portion. Cynthia raises a really good point. To tackle air pollution, there are a few strategies which we actually covered in last week's episode, like pollution standards or pollution taxes or cap and trade. In this case, the policy would have to be localized in some way. A market incentive or pollution standard across New York State, for example, would likely not substantially impact one small community. But any pollution-reducing policy you like could be designed within the specific neighborhood. Then there's some more common sense things, like actually requiring environmental impact statements and making sure they're thorough. And in cases like Fresh Direct, New York has ample opportunity to improve the environment while creating a freer market. As an already heavily subsidized business that still couldn't pay its taxes, Fresh Direct is basically the Mitch Trubisky of free market competition. New York could consider scaling back on these subsidies and tax breaks, or tying some of these deals to environmental guarantees. Of course, cracking down on Fresh Direct could lead to lost jobs, so any policy would need to consider those repercussions too. As we heard Michael Johnson say, people in his community don't want to be forced to pick between jobs and clean air. It's like when people ask me if I'd rather have no arms or no legs. Really? I'd rather have arms and legs, and I feel like there's got to be a scenario in which you don't feel the innate desire to chop two of my limbs off. And right now, Amazon and Walmart are actually clamoring to buy Fresh Direct and get a warehouse in New York City. 
So now's as good a time as any for New York to down a bottle of scotch, cut its losses, and decide on a plan that makes sense for the health, environment, and economy of the South Bronx. Another solution is adding more green space. The South Bronx is actually a peninsula tucked between the Bronx River, East River, and Harlem River. But despite living right near two water bodies, South Bronx residents have minimal access to nature. Our peninsula has no direct access to the waters that surrounds us. Our community has the lowest quantity of green space per capita in your other community in New York City. That's right. The three highways and five bridges running through the South Bronx prevent residents from accessing the rivers, and much of the waterfront can't be accessed by the public at all. That means residents who want to take a break from breathing air that smells like methane and particulate matter aren't able to go a few blocks west, east, or south to a river and breathe air that smells like a urinal cake. Parks and green spaces generally have better air quality than surrounding areas, and the plants can even remove some pollutants from the atmosphere, so it makes sense that countless studies link parks to improvements in many areas of public health, including asthma. And in addition to the waterfront land that could be made more accessible, there's also lots of publicly owned land in the South Bronx, some of which is abandoned. The city could convert these abandoned pieces of land into parks and see improvements in asthma and other areas of health as a result. Of course, this would cost money, but not as much as one would expect. Parks only account for half a percent of the New York City budget, costing $534 million this last fiscal year for the entire city. That's only four times the amount of money that was handed to Fresh Direct to open their warehouse. Other options include improving access to parks in other areas of the city, like they've done by adding a connector from the South Bronx to Randall's Island, or building more structures like the High Line, a linear park in Manhattan that's actually elevated high off the ground. I say New York City should just double down and create an 80-story park. You get kickball on floor 7, old people picking newspapers out of trash cans and giving you the middle finger on floor 33, and flash mob proposals on the roof. So that covers outdoor asthma triggers, but what about indoors? According to Holly West of Kentucky's Boyd County Health Department, there's a number of steps asthmatics can take to improve the conditions of their homes. Some of the most common problems that you're going to see are some of your behavior problems. Really providing the education for folks that are smoking inside of the home, folks that are lighting candles on a regular basis. As far as you know, water issues, just basic things like when someone gets out of the shower, not leaving their wet towel down on the floor, um, being able to teach them to clean with the green cleaning products. These are all very important steps, although to be fair, if someone you live with leaves their wet towels on the floor after taking a shower, they're a dick and you need to move somewhere else. In addition to individual education, there's a much bigger structural piece too. We've talked about mold and asbestos and rodent infestations, all of which are asthma triggers and appear at higher rates in low-income communities like the South Bronx. The South Bronx relies heavily on public housing from the New York City Housing Authority, or NYCHA, and NYCHA has a lot of work to do. A new report on mold in which over 200 NYCHA tenants across the city were polled. 59% say they have a mold problem. 72% say NYCHA failed to complete the repairs. And residents are suffering as a result, even suing the city. And it makes sense. If a city is going to invest in public housing, they have to make it livable. Of course, fixing mold and other issues does take significant investment, 
But remember, we're already paying a lot in healthcare costs and lost economic productivity due to asthma's effects on people's work and education. A moldy apartment is a different story than that day-old raspberry that's got a little gray speck on it, but hey, you're putting it in a smoothie, so who's going to notice? In addition to repairs, the city can also consider building new housing. Green housing, among other things, has better air ventilation and is less prone to infestations, making it a proven tactic for reducing asthma. Given that asthma has so many triggers and is partially genetic, it can feel discouraging to know that even with a perfect environment, people get asthma. I mean, the word asthma came from the ancient Greeks, where patients would be advised to sacrifice a pig or goat to the gods, who in exchange would cure their asthma. And of course, Fresh Direct didn't have a warehouse in Athens, they were busy setting up shop in Mesopotamia. But since we know the toll asthma takes on the South Bronx and countless other marginalized communities across the country, and we know what environmental factors aggravate it, we have the opportunity to make massive strides toward reducing the disease. And if we do, we'll have a safer environment, stronger economy, and a lot more asthma-free children able to go to the river or the park and... Smile! When you're squeezing milk out of the udders of the animal that has the largest greenhouse gas emissions of any other animal, what are you thinking? If it's what if I mix this with chocolate, the food that requires the most water to produce per pound in the world, then chocolate milk is for you. Chocolate milk, the one time a double negative makes a positive. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Elizabeth Garland, a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Dr. Garland, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So you were the principal investigator on the Children's Environmental Health Foundation study to evaluate the impact of LEED certified greenhousing on asthma patients in the South Bronx. I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about how the study worked and what the findings were? Sure. Well, this is a project that I did with my master's in public health students, and we were fortunate enough to connect with the developer who was building a new affordable housing building in the South Bronx, which also has high rates of asthma. And these people were winning a lottery and able to move into this particular building. And so what these students did, they went to the prospective tenants, they visited their homes, they did health questionnaires on their asthma symptoms and their exacerbations and their hospitalization rates, and also mental health, how they felt about having asthma, what kind of stress that occurred on their life, including missed school, missed not being able to participate in sports and those kinds of activities. Then after they moved into this brand new green affordable housing, which was LEED certified. We went back to their apartment, a new apartment, one month later, and we interviewed them again. Lo and behold, we were shocked by the results. We were talking about children that went from three, four exacerbations of asthma a week to zero, from a missed school day once or twice a month to zero, from nighttime symptoms every single night to zero. And then we had parents coming up to us and saying, when I moved into this building, all my allergies went away. I used to have to take medicine every day for my allergies, and now I don't have to do that anymore. This was just a pilot project. Uh, the building only had 67 apartments in it, and only about 40 of the apartments had children, and only about 25 of those apartments had children with asthma. But even so, in such a small project, we found uh, pretty good results. 
That's really striking how the symptoms just dropped once they moved into these green housing. I'm wondering, is it something inherent about the fact that the housing is green that makes the symptoms drop, or is it more by nature of having asthma triggers removed? In other words, if they were to move into housing that was perhaps not LEED certified, but did not have rat infestations or mold or asbestos or cockroaches, would they see the same results? Uh, you would still see the same results, but they might not be as dramatic because part of the green housing and the LEED certified and the enterprise certified housing is it focuses on ventilation and you have HEPA air filtration. And if you live in certain neighborhoods in New York City, if you live near roadways like the Cross Bronx Expressway or the FDR Drive or 95, we have proven that children who live near these high vehicular roadways do have higher incidence of asthma. So it definitely would improve, but maybe not as dramatically as um, if you went into the LEED certified. Also, in the older apartment buildings, there's a lot of bleeding from one apartment to the next. So if your apartment, somebody is smoking, the smoke does go into the common areas and does go into the other apartments. And part of these new buildings are segregation of each apartment and also special trickle vent vents on the windows so that air goes out, not in, so air pollution and small particulate matter don't enter the apartments. But asthma is about 50-50 genetics environment. Um, there are some genes, this is not my area at all, that actually are specific for asthma, but 50% is still environmental. And that's a lot, that's a big number. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm just wondering, geographically, was the greenhousing building that you would move the test subjects into in the same neighborhood as the old building, or would it be in a different part of the city? The first project that we did with students was the asthma study that was in the Bronx, in the Melrose section of the Bronx. Then we did the active design building was about a half a mile away. Then we did a whole new project with the same developer because now the developer really liked us. They really liked researching the health impacts of their building. They were spending a little more money on doing these buildings with active design strategies and they wanted to make sure that it was worthwhile. So the next one was in Brooklyn and we did two or three buildings, two active design buildings, and one control building, again, all in the same geographic neighborhood. That's really interesting. So even in these areas with high air pollution, the buildings were ventilated enough to see these big symptom reductions. So you mentioned before how asthma is half genetic and half environmental, and I wanted to ask, African-American and Latino communities face higher rates of asthma than white communities all over the country, and these communities also have higher rates of low-income housing, higher rates of air pollution, all of these triggers. So we know that's a really strong correlation. And while I was researching, I was seeing all these studies saying that African-American and Latino communities are more genetically susceptible to asthma too. And I wanted to ask about it because I'm not a medical expert, but I know historically and currently there have been major misconceptions about genetics and race. And I saw people in these communities saying like, why are researchers looking for genetic differences when there are these clear environmental triggers that are disproportionately affecting us? So I'm wondering as a medical professional who has studied asthma in the South Bronx and some of these other communities, what are your thoughts on these genetic studies? So that is a really difficult question, and um, I am really not in the area of genetics, 
but I was actually on a call earlier this morning with a colleague of mine who is, uh, she's an allergist immunologist, so she studies asthma all the time, and I asked her this, and she said it's really difficult and you really can't answer it, and she doesn't know the literature well enough to actually say. She said 50-50 sounded about right, but the environmental components and the environmental triggers of asthma, um, if we could just impact that 50%, just think how better off we would be. Uh, the biggest trigger for children happens to be getting sick, so getting upper respiratory infection or an ear infection is also a trigger for asthma. So it's very complicated, and it's what we call multifactorial, so it's hard to just pick out one thing, though there have been identified genetic loci that are associated with asthma. I'm not sure if that helps answer that question, but that's a, it's a tricky one. Yeah, that absolutely helps. So many patients with asthma need more than just a prescription from their doctors, whether it's mm -hmm. notes for school or occupational asthma patients who may need to change desks or departments or even jobs because of indoor triggers. And as a doctor, I was wondering, is it a challenge to provide that level of support, particularly in these low-income areas where there may be higher rates of asthma and fewer hospitals in some cases? Yeah, it definitely is. Each family is unique and, and each child is unique and each child has a different set of triggers and each family has a different set of struggles. I, um, I have three children and my youngest son had asthma and I'm a pediatrician and I did research on asthma and he needed his asthma medicines before he caught the bus to go to school and sometimes we just ran out of time and he didn't even get to take his medicines and I would get overwhelmed by the whole thing and I would take a step back and say, oh my God, I'm a pediatrician who studies asthma, who knows the important, and I'm having a hard time pulling it all together. What about the poor moms and dads and caregivers you know, in the city who don't have all the knowledge I have and the support that I have? It's a very complicated problem. I had a study about 20 years ago that healthcare workers went into homes and worked with families. We gave them HEPA filter vacuum cleaners. We gave them air conditioners. We taught them how to keep their kitchen clean. We educated them on the importance of all the medications. And I know you're not surprised, but what happened? Asthma exacerbations went down, emergency room visits went down, hospitalizations went down. But that's a lot of work one-on-one. -on -one. We had maybe 60 families in the study over the course of five years. We showed with that intensity, we could make a difference. But uh, the healthcare system doesn't have the time. We have the knowledge, but not always the time and the, the people power to actually spend with the families. The families also might not have time and don't want people coming into their home to see their housing conditions and their clutter or lack thereof and accept the help. Yeah, so we've talked about a lot of really interesting things. And as a medical professional, after doing this research on greenhousing and asthma, mm -hmm. among many other research projects, what would your message be to policymakers in New York City or in any other community looking to reduce asthma and figuring out how to allocate funding, since obviously all this stuff costs money? Yeah. Funding is, is, as you know, always um, always a tricky one. The City Council and the City Department of Health has recognized the increased incidence and prevalence of this uh, chronic disease. People often don't think it's a chronic disease because once when it's under control, you don't have an asthma exacerbation, but you don't have asthma anymore, but you do. And you can still have it for life, even if you quote unquote grow out of it. 
it can appear later in different ways, like exercise-induced asthma. And so the problem is that they put money in and they do home visits and they do smoking cessation services for families and educate families. And then the incidence goes down, ER visits go down, and guess what happens? They start taking the money away. They say, oh, you solved the problem. So the problem is it's a chronic disease. It's going to be a chronic problem. It's multifactorial, as we talked about. We need to work on our housing stock in New York City. We desperately need to improve the ventilation to newer standards. We need to work with families on the importance of preventive medications as well as rescue medications. We need to work on, and we have worked on policies about children um, being allowed to bring their medications to their schools, which a long time ago they weren't even allowed to do that, so that they can self-administer during the day or just before they take a physical education class. So, you know, and we need to work on air pollution, and that's for sure. And it's one thing the COVID-19 has done with lots of less traffic on the road, and we have seen improvements in the air pollution monitors and EPA monitors around the city, and I look forward to looking at the impact that might have on asthma exacerbation and see if that can help improve the situation, and maybe we could change up some of our zoning and our, and our rules on cars and our pricing. I know it's not very popular, and since I live in Manhattan, I do want to be able to go in and out of my apartment without getting charged on my car each time. But there's no doubt that decreased car traffic also helps, and we want to try to do anything in that regard as we, as, as possible. Yeah, we actually did a, our first episode was on traffic. We did a whole oh. thing on uh, congestion pricing in New York City. Congestion so. pricing, yeah. Yep. I hope that something like that would work. These take large studies. There's not a lot of money to do asthma research. Medical field kind of goes in phases. You know, first it's obesity, then it's asthma, then it's, you know, something else. And now, again, we're now in COVID-19 at, at our hospital during the pandemic. And just actually this week, we were not allowed to do any research on any topic other than the coronavirus. So now we are allowed so we can get back to our other work. But that's what happens, unfortunately, with funding. And we need to keep the funding. We need to keep HUD on top of this and continue to require that we improve our housing stock so that the most unfortunate people in the country don't end up in the worst housing. And that we can, I think every child deserves to have clean air and have better indoor air quality. Dr. Garland, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This wraps up episode nine of The Sweaty Penguin. Thank you again to Elizabeth Garland for her insights. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll see you there. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Shannon Damiano, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.